Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. Hey, today, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, will you open up to the book of 2 Peter? We're in chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 11 through 18. We're going to finish up today. We're going to finish this series today. Now, I am forever grateful for Central Bible College. I know you hear me tell stories about it all the time. But I am forever grateful for my time at CBC. I didn't start out at Central Bible College. I started out at Northwestern, Northwest University. Then it was Northwest College of the Assemblies of God there in Seattle, Washington. It was a liberal arts school, a Christian school, but it was not a Bible school. And I had a good, good two years there, and then I transferred to Central Bible College. And I'm telling you, I am so so grateful for my time at CBC. Trained me, prepared me for full-time ministry. And I'm a firm, firm believer that if if somebody wants to have the title pastor, if they want to go into ministry, they need training. They need training. I believe that the call to ministry actually is the call to preparation. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus spent 30 years in preparation for a three-year earthly ministry experience. Think about that. 30 years preparing for three years of earthly ministry. And, And for those who are called, particularly into the into the responsibility of shepherding the people of God as pastors, that, that is a calling that demands, I believe, the most rigorous preparation one could imagine. Because frankly, the challenges and the demands of pastoral ministry, they're so significant. And even though we may have the enthusiasm of wanting to get to the task right now, we don't know what we, what we don't know, <laughs> right? And if you're responsible for teaching God's word on a weekly basis, you need training. I wouldn't want a doctor working on me who did his medical school through, through some online program and it took him six months to do it. Would you? So I'm thankful for my time at Central Bible College. Love it. I'm thankful for my time at the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. But in all my time at both the seminary and at Bible College, I never learned to do a wedding. Never learn to do a wedding. And let's be honest, pastors do a lot of weddings. I've done more funerals than I have done weddings. So I'm just saying, if there's people out there that are wanting to get married, you know where to come. First wedding I ever did, I had no clue what I was doing, especially uh, during the rehearsal. My first wedding, which happened to be my cousin, so that's really good. She was very forgiving. But I remember the wedding director or the wedding planner, whatever they call them, she kept coming up to me and she kept saying, you're good, right? You know what you're doing? Yeah, I know what I'm doing. Don't worry. So the rehearsal came and I went up to the front and everybody was looking at me and, and saying, well, what do we do? And I said, well, as soon as the music kicks on, just, you know, march down to the stage or whatever, and then uh, we'll get going. And I'm sitting there reading my minister's manual and I'm looking at what I need to do next. The music kicks on, everybody's coming down, they don't know where to go, they're standing all over the place, and finally the wedding director said, you don't know what you're doing, do you? <laughs> Was it that obvious? She said, have everybody, you got to show everybody their spot to, to where they go. You got to sometimes even put an X. Do you have tape to put, put down on the, where, where they need to be on the stage? No, no, I don't, but I can point to it. So I, I pointed and told them where they're going, and, here's, and they did that, you know, and everybody, it's amazing once you, you know where you're going and what you're doing, how smooth things will go. Because what you believe about where you're going or where you're going to end up has bearing on how you march in. I'll say that again. What you believe about where you're going to end up has bearing on how you march in. The same is true for our eschatology. If you're wondering what that word is, I know it's a big word. It's, it's the part of the, theology that's concerned with death, judgment, the final destiny of the soul, and of humankind. Eschatology. There you go. You learned a new word today. What you and I believe about the end of the world is going to determine how we march towards it. 
So the purpose, listen, the purpose of prophetic truth is not speculation, but motivation. So Peter concludes his letter with some very practical admonitions, the kind of admonitions that every one of us need in our life today. And I'll be honest, as a pastor, it is unfortunate. It's even disappointing that so many believers run from one prophetic conference to another with their their little notebooks and they're gonna mark up their Bibles, they're gonna draw draw up their charts, and yet with all of that, they don't live a life that gives God any glory whatsoever. Every true follower of Jesus Christ believes that Jesus is coming back. We talked about it. If you missed my sermon from two weeks ago, here's, here's the big idea. Jesus is coming back. Jesus said he would, he is, and it should change the way we live, right? The belief that Jesus is coming back, that, that should really motivate the way that the church lives right now. It should motivate the way that you live right now. One pastor said this, I've moved off the planning committee and I've joined the welcoming committee. I like that. It doesn't mean we should stop studying prophecy or that it doesn't even mean that every opposing viewpoint is correct because that's impossible. But it does mean this, that whatever view that we have today, that view should make a difference in our lives. I get really annoyed sometimes, even in my own denomination, when I see ministers arguing over eschatology and, and the, they're missing the big picture here. Eschatology really should be helping us change and it should form our life right now. So whatever you believe, I won't get into it today, whatever you believe, it should change the way you live right now. Now. I wanna tell you, we see this word all throughout Peter's letter, make an effort. We're gonna see it in our text today. Make effort, make effort. In fact, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse five, Peter said this, for this very reason, make every effort. Some translations say, be diligent to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Then again, in chapter five verses down, he says this, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Then again, another five verses, same chapter, chapter one, he says, and I will make every effort, again, some translations, be diligent so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So guess what? If you and I are going to be successful Christ followers, we have to learn to make an effort. We have to learn to make an effort. We've got to put something into it. We have to be diligent. This is what Peter's going to end the letter on. Peter gives us three areas of our spiritual life that we're we're going to need to make an effort in. He gives us three applications regarding how you and I are to wait for the return of Jesus. I want to look at the first one with you. It's in verses, we're going to look at verses 11 through 14. It's real simple. If you're taking notes, write it down. Be godly. Be godly. Look with me, starting verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Now, you guys know. Actually, you know what? I didn't pray. Let's pray. As we dive into this text, let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you. God, we want you to be God today in this place. We want you to be God and establish yourself, not just in this sanctuary with us as a corporate body, but in our lives individually. Be our God. Be glorified and be, be worshiped and praised today. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what only your Holy Spirit can do. Would you enlighten us to understand, to grasp, and be able to apply your text to our life so we can actually see life transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I need to stop here just for a minute. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, there's a lot of powerful truth in that statement, okay? So I wanna stop for a minute, can't help it. It's just such a powerful truth we just read. Peter's just told us that nothing man-made is gonna be in eternity. Nothing man-made is going to be eternity. Think about that for a minute. God is going to destroy everything that is made by humans. And then the kingdom of God, everything in the kingdom of God, everything will be made by God. So our, everything in the kingdom of God is not going to be made by you or me. That means everything that we have down here is going to be destroyed. Now that truth, it really should, it should rattle our worldview. You think about it, our priorities should be God's priorities. And, and God's priorities are people. 
people. Man, I love my house. I do. I love it. I'm so grateful for my home, but I can't take it to heaven. Some people really love their cars. And I said some people. Because <laughs> some of us are like, thank God we're not taking our car to heaven. Big red, my big, my big van, she ain't going to make it to heaven. And I love my big red van. But it's not going to heaven. We can't take that to heaven. I love my hot tub, especially at this time of the year. Love that hot tub. Guess what? I can't take my hot tub to heaven. Can't take my hot tub to heaven. Now, do you know what does make it to heaven? People. People. I'm not against possessions, but man, if we really believe that Jesus is coming back, our biggest concern should be about people way more than the toys that we have. Right? I've seen a bumper sticker out there in... I, I kid you not, it says, he who dies with the most toys wins. You guys ever seen that bumper sticker? It exists, it's out there. Just recently, and I like this one a lot, a lot better, I've seen a bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys still dies. <laughs> We're all going to die. Every one of our possessions that we have, we can't take to heaven with us. The most precious parts of our life are the people in our life. And if everything else is going to go away, and the only thing that we can bring into the kingdom of God is the people we have relationships with, then, man, we should probably prioritize people. Hmm? So all the investments that you make ultimately, ultimately will be for naught. All the investments that you make in people will endure forever. Jesus died for people. People must be God's priority if people are God's priority, then they need to be our priority, right? I've heard a saying in this church once or twice that if God cares about the lost, we better care about the lost, right? <laughs> so, if we, if we love God and God loves us, then people should be our priority. And I mean, this is what Peter's telling us right here. And it should be. It should be life-changing for us. Everything, and I mean everything is going to go away except for Jesus and people. So church, listen to me. Make sure that Jesus and people are your priorities, right? All right, let's, let's finish. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the, day, the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, there it is again, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, not sure what great philosopher came up with the saying, but it's pretty good. If, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck, right? What a person says or does is usually a good indicator of who that person is. If it doesn't look like a duck, if it doesn't walk like a duck, and it doesn't quack like a duck, well then, man, it probably isn't a duck, right? And this is what Peter is saying about false teachers. Not just false teachers, but their followers. If a person doesn't walk like a Christian, if a person doesn't talk like a Christian, then they're probably not Christians. And if you don't really believe that Jesus is coming back, then you don't really care about how you live. So the basic idea of what Peter is telling us is that a right view of Jesus' second coming should lead to the right kind of living right now. Right now, it should change the way that you and I live. If we truly believe Jesus is coming back, it is going to change everything, right? Now, you know, these, these four verses here that we're looking at right now, these verses 11 through 14, they're, they're pretty similar to the if-then statements that Peter makes in chapter 2. If you look at verses 4 through 10, you don't have to go back, but really when it, in verses, or chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, Peter's talking a lot about God's track record of justice. And he uses a lot of these if-then statements. If you go back, you look, you're going to see that Peter basically says this. If, if Jesus is coming back to judge the wicked and deliver the righteous, well, then you really should live righteously while you wait for him to come back. I mean, it's a no-brainer for Peter. Should be a no-brainer for us. If the end of the world is going to be destroyed and Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead, then it just makes sense 
that his readers should respond by living godly lives, right? Remember, Peter's already told us in verse 10 that, the end of the, that, that Jesus is going to come back. He's already, he's already made sure that we're aware of that. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Isn't it funny that uh, thieves don't give you a heads up that they're coming to rob your house? It's not like home alone where we know they're coming and we can, we can set up all kinds of booby traps to get these crooks and these thieves. We don't know when they're coming. They use the element of surprise, right? So, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now in verse 12, Peter completes this idea and he tells us this. He tells us that there's going to be the destruction of the heavens. It's going to be done by fire. He says the elements are going to melt in the heat. And then, but in verse 11, where we started, he, he poses this question. So if all of this is happening... If all of this is happening, what, what, do we, what should you do about it? How should you live? And he immediately gives us an answer. You should live holy and godly lives. Holy and godly lives. What does that mean? If you've grown up in the church, you've heard those terms. I always say they're Christianese terms. Holiness and godliness. I wonder how many in the church actually could answer the question, what does that mean? What is holiness? What is godliness? What, what do they mean, right? What does a life that's godly and, and holy look like? Is it someone who, who doesn't do anything pleasurable? No. Because a life of don't, that was the life of the Pharisees in the New Testament. And that's unfortunate. And fortunately, it's the life of a lot of people in the church today. They think that serving Jesus is just a bunch. You can't enjoy anything about life. Well, that's not necessarily what the Bible teaches. We, we need a die to, to sinful pleasures but God is all about us enjoying life. We can enjoy good things in life. I told you, I enjoy my hot tub. You know where to find me every night at about 6 p.m. I'm in my hot tub. That's right. I, and I enjoy it. I enjoy my hot tub quite a bit. A life of don't. That was the life of the Pharisees in the New Testament. But if it's fun, then you just can't do it. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. But Jesus, he does give us a, a picture of what a life of godliness and holiness looks like. In fact, he, he tells us what it looks like in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. I'm going to have you look at this with me real quick. It should be up on the screen. There we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you... When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now what does all that mean? Well, the poor in spirit, right? That simply means truly humble. People who don't consider themselves as ha of having any special privilege or, or, or any merit. Do we see that in the church today? Do we see that with our church's leadership? What about those who mourn? These are people who are grieved. They're grieved by sinning against God. Do we see people in the church mourning today? Do we see people truly grieved by the sin in their life? Man, if we did, we'd see revival. The meek, those are people who, they don't, they don't talk much about their achievements and they prefer to let others speak well about them. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not just that they have been declared righteous by God when they said yes to Jesus, but, but they love to live righteously. And they love to do it because it honors the Jesus who saved them. How about the merciful? Not people who love to condemn. Merciful people are people who, who don't condemn. They treat others with the same mercy which, which they were treated with. How about the pure in heart? Now, obviously, nobody but God is perfect, but, but these are people without malice. With, they have good intentions and with, with this overarching desire to live in a way that reflects the gospel. They're pure in heart. The peacemakers, big one here. These are people who love to forgive. Did you hear me? These are people who love to forgive. Be a part of a church for a few months and you're gonna learn you have to forgive. 
It's so funny how much Jesus talks about forgiveness and yet how, how much we don't see it in the present church today. Not this church, just over our, speaking generally here. Christians don't like to, we, humans don't like to forgive. We like to hold on to that. Anything, if we've, been, if we've been offended in any way, we hold on to it. And yet one of the key attributes of a Christ follower is somebody who can forgive. Peacemakers. They are people who love reconciliation. And then, of course, those who are persecuted, well, those, these are people willing to suffer persecution for Jesus. They're going to take a stand for Jesus Christ, and they're going to pay a price for it. This is holiness. This is godliness. This is what Jesus said how, how we should live. And then again, in, in the book of Titus, I think I have this one for you too. In the book of Titus in chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, Paul says something I want you to take note. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then listen to this, verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So listen, Peter's not teaching anything new. He's teaching what Paul taught. The grace of God, that's what saves us, and it's the grace. It's the grace of God that enables you and I to say no to worldly desires. And guess what? Contrary to popular opinion, we do need to say no to worldly desires. It is the call of the Christian. We are supposed to say no to worldly desires. Don't miss out on that part. Peter stresses it. Paul stresses it. Paul's command to Titus and to all of us, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives while we wait for Jesus to come back. Listen, church, conduct matters. Behavior matters. Conduct matters. How you live your life matters. We are called to deny ourselves the enjoyment of certain sinful pleasures, and we're only able to do this by the training that comes from His grace. But it's nevertheless, it's our responsibility. You have a part in your Christian walk. The whole idea, I hear it all the time, let go and let God. Well, under certain circumstances and context, that's really powerful. Oh, our roof is leaking. <laughs> How about that? One more thing we're going to fix. That's okay. <laughs> Under certain context, excuse me. <coughs> Under certain contexts, that's really good. Let go, let God. Sometimes life is out of your, your control and there's nothing you can do but let go and let God. Guess what? When it comes to your behavior and your conduct, you don't just let go. You've got a personal responsibility. God expects you to say no, and He expects you to train yourself to say no. He expects you to discipline yourself spiritually to say no to certain things in your life, okay? So that's why Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself. Paul doesn't just assume that because Timothy's experienced salvation, it's going to automatically reduce and produce godly and holy character. Did you hear me, church? Doesn't, Paul doesn't just assume that just because Timothy is saved, that that is going to be an automatic life of holiness and godliness. Training means gradual growth. It's the goal of developing a disciplined life. So listen, first and foremost, you've got to begin by having a strict, not just strict, but impartial look into your own heart and seek out what it is that most likely, what it is most likely to prevent you from advancing in godliness. Only you can do this. Look carefully at your habits. Look carefully at what you do in secret when no one's watching. Does it reflect the life that you live outside? Are there habits that you need a break in your life? Are there people, activities, companions, conversations, personal pursuits that prevent prevents your advancement to godliness? Only you can answer this. Are you feeding your soul with the right food? I like this story I've heard before. I think it illustrates this point really well. It says, a great man had a camel that was wasting away until it seemed at the point of death. See, cried he to the simple son of the desert, here is my camel. I have tried everything. Alas, all are in vain. The plain man looked at the hollow sides, the staring bones, the projecting ribs. O oh, most learned philosopher, said he, thy camel needeth but one thing. What is it, my son, asked the old wise man eagerly. Food, sir, and plenty of it. Dear me, cried the philosopher, I never thought of that. 
So question is this, is your soul starved? Is your soul starved? Are you addressing the real and true issue of your spiritual condition? Are you dealing with the true problem of ungodliness in your life? And are you feeding yourself the right food? Start by giving your starved soul more prayer, more, more communion with God, more meditation on God's word. How much time do you spend in God's word? What are your priorities? I've often been told if you look at someone's checkbook, you'll see their priorities. Well, that's true if, if you have money. But there were times where I was in college, if you looked at my checkbook, you wouldn't determine anything, but man, he's really poor. <laughs> It's not just what you give, that's not it. But if you looked at somebody's life, where are they investing their time, their energy? That's where their priorities are gonna be. Where are you investing? Where are your priorities? Examine yourself. You gotta find out the root cause for your lack. If that's something in your life today that you, you would say, man, Pastor Justin, I don't read my Bible enough. I'm not someone who really prays except before dinner, lunch, or breakfast. It's not a habit in my life. I don't, I don't have a lot of these habits that you're talking about right now. You've got to look at yourself and find out the root, root cause for your lack. You're not free from responsibility in your Christian walk, okay? Just because you cannot earn grace, there's nothing you can do to earn grace, doesn't mean that you don't have responsibility in your walk with Jesus, You see, you can get to heaven by the grace, but you can lose out on victory and blessings and benefits right here, right now, if you don't take responsibility, if you don't make an effort. I get sick and tired sometimes of people coming in, not here, of course, people coming into my office and saying, man, I want this, I want this blessing, I want this blessing, but their life does not reflect a life of discipline. You want the benefits and the blessing that come with following Jesus, then you've got to put a little effort into it. Amen? Second thing I want to look at found in verses 15 through 16. Here it is, if you're taking notes. Seize the day. Seize the day. Look with me, verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Thank God for Peter and his honesty, right? When you're reading the Bible and you're reading Paul and you're like, what in the world is he talking? Just know that Peter felt the same way, okay? There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Have you guys ever seen the movie Dead Poets Society? No, okay, a few of you have. It's a movie from my childhood. It came out in 1989, but the film's supposed to take place in 1959. Stars Robin Williams. It tells the story of this English professor, John, John Keating, who inspires his students at a boys' school to love poetry and to overcome their reluctance to make change in their lives. Now, this is not a movie I would have picked. It was a, a movie I was forced to watch in one of my high school classes. And I would have never picked a movie based on poetry. That just wasn't something I would have done. But I'm glad I watched it. It was a good movie. And at one point in the movie, this professor who's played by Robin Williams, he's showing his students these pictures that are on display in the school trophy case in the hall. And the pictures are of of deceased alumni from years gone by. And the professor wants to impress on the boys the brevity of life and the need to make the most of their lives. So he whispers in their ears as they stare at these old pictures. He says, if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. They're staring at this picture. He says, go on, lean in, listen. Do you hear it? Carpe. Do you hear that? Carpe, carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. The professor, he didn't want his students to miss the opportunity to take advantage of the short time they had here on this earth. He wanted all of his students to leave, leave an imprint. Peter doesn't want any of his readers, his listeners, to miss their opportunity to make a difference in the short life, the short time here on earth that they've been given. So his second application is for believers to seize the day. Seize the day. Why? Seize it in order to maximize our gospel influence and make the most of this time before Jesus comes back. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter passionately, passionately tells us to pursue our salvation, but not just our salvation, the salvation of others. 
He's going to lean on some of Paul's teachings here, and he's going he's to warn us about those who want to distort the truth. One more time now, one more time, Peter's going to show that the delay in Jesus is coming back. It, it, it's not a sign that he's not going to fulfill his promise. In fact, it's a sign that he wants more and more people saved. He refers to the fact that even Paul's taught the very same thing. God is more concerned with the fate of unsaved people than even you and I are. And according to Peter, the reason for the delay in his return is because he wants people to come back to him. He wants to save as many as he can. Think about the very last words of Jesus in Matthew 28. The Great Commission, verses 19 through 20. Look at it with me real quick. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Listen to me. Jesus' vision of the church was not a group of people gathered around one anointed leader, but multiple leaders going out in the power of the Holy Spirit. That was the vision that Jesus had for the church. Did you hear me? It wasn't, it wasn't all these people gathered around one anointed leader. It was a community of anointed leaders going out, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and making a difference in people's lives. That's the vision that Jesus had for the church. And it's a claim that very few of us take seriously. I mean, Jesus literally said that a, uh, a multiplicity of spirit-filled leaders would be greater than his earthly bodily presence. You think about that. Jesus said the church has the potential of doing even greater things or having a greater impact than even what he did while he lived here on earth. But that's only going to happen if the church realizes it and takes the claim serious, that you are called by God. You are chosen to go make a difference. I told you the Great Commission in the original Greek, it's more like as you are going. That leaves nobody out. You've said yes to Jesus. You've got a call on your life to go make disciples. Can you imagine the power of a church in which ordinary members know what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God and led by the Spirit of God? God's plan to glorify himself in the church, it never consisted of platform mega pastors, cutting edge art, or expensive buildings. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. We've dumped a lot of money into our building. And, and by the way, go, if you haven't gone downstairs, go, go downstairs and see what we're doing because I, I know I pitched my vision almost two years ago now and it's been real slow, but God is faithful. God is good. It's happening. Go downstairs and look at what we've done in our kids' family center. But God's plan to glorify himself in the church, it never, never consisted of platform mega pastors cutting-edge art, expensive buildings. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But listen, the real power in the church is found in the Holy Spirit moving through ordinary people as they carry his presence into the streets. The real power is sitting right here in the chairs. That's where the real power is going to be. Luke goes out of his way to show that the biggest advances of the gospel happen through ordinary people. Ordinary people, all of the miracles in the book of Acts. There's 40 miracles in the book of Acts recorded, and 39 of them were done outside of the church. Did you hear me? 39 miracles in the book of Acts were done outside the church. Man, that should, that's crazy when you think about it. <laughs> you know what? We need to expect that kind of ratio today. That's the kind of ratio we need to expect. If we experience uh, five miracles on a Sunday morning, I want to see 25 miracles and hear about 25 miracles happening Monday through Friday at your workplace, on your neighborhood streets. In our post-Christian age, there are going to be fewer and fewer people who are going to casually make their way into our churches. This is just a reality that we're facing as the Christian church. The de-churched are becoming the unchurched. They view Christianity the way that maybe you and I might view Islam. Now think about this for a minute. It, I, I probably wouldn't meander my way into a mosque. Even if their music was awesome. Even if their imam was an engaging speaker and he was doing uh, a really good series on relationships or uh, a really neat series on at the movies and, and ba applying basic truths to your life. I, I probably, honestly, I wouldn't walk into that building just because of the way I was raised, because of, uh, it's just the way it is, right? We can't expect cutting-edge music and entertaining speakers to continue doing the same trick. You think people are just going to walk into our church 
especially in today's world with what they're being told about the church, what culture's teaching them. You think they're just gonna decide on Sunday, I'm gonna walk into this church. Man, that looks really cool. They have a really neat sign. I saw them on Facebook, it was really cool. I heard they do incredible, incredible uh, music and they've got some big, awesome screen in the back that's just amazing, the technology. Why, doggone it, I'm gonna walk in on Sunday. I don't think so. People in our day are gonna increasingly have to be reached outside the walls of the church. And that means individual believers living filled with the Spirit is more important than ever. You see, my vision for this church is you guys, you guys. I wanna see you filled with the Holy Spirit. I wanna resource you on a Sunday morning. I wanna teach you God's word. I want you to go out filled with the Holy Spirit and make disciples. That's what I wanna see. And that, that means that, that as a church, we've gotta focus on empowering and equipping those in our church for ministry. That's what we do. I won't lie to you, it's pretty encouraging to see attendance numbers grow when they do. <laughs> But I know that incremental growth won't make a difference for 99% of the people in the greater Cincinnati area. We, New Heights Church, we need to empower our people to multiply God's power where they already are. You guys need the power of the Holy Spirit in your workplace. You need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and preach the gospel in your neighborhood, in your workplace. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul said, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do what? To equip, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What that means is that when I became a pastor, I kinda in some ways left the ministry because my role as a pastor isn't just to do ministry, but to equip you people to understand your calling and God's mission and to see you guys carry it out. It's the role of a pastor. God's kingdom advances as we multiply our leaders, not as we hoard them. My job is to produce leaders, to produce leaders. And our goal here at New Heights Church is, is that we develop a leadership pipeline. It's a way for us to, to help people clarify their calling and gain the, the competence to accomplish it. Everybody who comes, you look at our wall, we intentionally commission every member. That's because everybody who says yes to Jesus has a call. At the basic level, we're gonna help members become leaders. Then we're gonna help leaders become ministers. That's why we're starting a leadership college. This is not the time in our country to shut down Bible colleges. This is the time we need to focus on it intentionally and be strategic about it. We need church planters more than we've ever needed them before, and they need to be trained. They need to know God's word and know how to handle it because we've got so many opposing views coming. If they don't know God's word, it's gonna be too easy to fall. And with all due respect, people don't need fluff right now from the pulpit. They need God's truth. We wanna see church planners, missionaries, lay leaders, etc., being produced here at New Heights Church. We wanna fill the homes, the offices, the neighborhoods of Cincinnati and all around the world with leaders, not merely Christian converts, but Christian disciples. My prayer is that this church truly understands that multiplication is greater than addition. Do you hear me? That's our desire as a church because the greatest ministry power happens not as we add to our numbers, but as we empower and we release people into the world. It happens when we open our hands to God and we say, we don't wanna be a group of people gathered around a leader, but we wanna be a leadership factory. God, may that be the story here at New Heights Church. In this new season, as you wanna take us to New Heights, would we be a leadership producing factory? Seize the day, make the most of your time, bring as many people to heaven as you can. But Peter doesn't just emphasize that. He also says in order to do that, in order to make the most of your time here, to seize the day, you're gonna have to not get caught up with false teaching. When Peter lumps Paul's letters together with the other letters, we see that in verse 16, we gain this insight and it's huge and I don't want you to miss it. Jesus himself viewed the Old Testament scripture as, as fully authoritative and binding when properly interpreted and applied. They were the word of God. We see that in Mark chapter seven. Then Peter in chapter one, verses 20 through 21, that prophetic scripture, and I think he would include all of the Old Testament, was inspired by God as men were moved by the Holy Spirit. So when he puts Paul's letters in the same category, he's, 
he's, I believe, claiming an equal inspiration and authority for Paul, of Paul. He confirms that what Paul claimed for himself, Paul said of his own teaching in 1 Corinthians 2.13, he says, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. This is why the Bible stands at the center of the Christian life. New Heights Church believes the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it stands before us as our guide and over us as our judge and under us as the rock of our hope. John Wesley wrote in the preface of of his standard sermons, he said, I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over a great gulf till a few moments hence I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. And you know what my vision is for this church? That we might be a people of the book. That we would be a people of the book. I love how Psalms 1 says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Listen, the apostles, they are united with each other, Peter and Paul, that the Old Testament is one great inspired book of God. The more you read it, the more you're going to see the eyes of God. Too many believers today are being led astray by false teaching. Teaching being done in the name of Christianity, but it has nothing to do with this book. Not on my clock. I understand that preaching God's word sometimes is not the most popular thing to do. But I love you and care about you too much to not do it. This has to be the guide. This has to be the source. This has to be what we rely on. Look, you got to, this is your guide for living. I want to see you receive all the blessings and the benefits that come with following Jesus. But if I get up here and don't do anything but preach my own philosophy, I'm only going to hurt you. This has got to be it. And in today's world, I'm telling you, moms and dads, of all the things you let your kids watch on TV, of all the things you let them read, make sure that they're getting a good intake of God's word. Make sure they're getting a good, make sure that this is not just something you put under your table to, equal, to, to stabilize it. Take this off your shelf, man. Dust, dust the dust off. Get this, make it a part of your daily life. My father woke up at 4 a.m. I hated him for it, and now I love him for it. It was the only time he could get all the kids together. We had to wake up at 4 a.m., and he would open the Bible, and for a good hour, he would teach it to us. That word has been with me ever since. It's been in my heart. It's helped me to, it's been the guide in my life. And I have never, ever strayed away from this truth. Never. I'm thankful that my dad thought it was so important that he would wake up a bunch of kids at 4 a.m. in the morning. Be radical. Do it. You can't find, it's hard to find time. The reason we, we have to wake up in the morning because my kids have basketball. They've got violin, ballet. It's hard to find time to do it. If we have to wake up at 4 a.m., we're going to do it. This has got to be something we do in our life. Third thing, here's the final thing, verses 17 through 18. Don't cave in. Don't cave in. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I love watching human pyramids. Now, now not, I've been watching them ever since I was a little kid. And I, I'll have to admit, maybe in, in junior high I would watch because it was the cheerleaders. But I always get a kick out of watching human, the human periods. You know, I went to the... Uh, Cincinnati Bearcats game and they, the cheerleaders would do this. I, I've got to admit there's a sinister side to, to why I like to watch. There's this kind of this hope that somebody's going to fall and the whole thing's going to crumble. <laughs> you know, and I, I want to I kind of watch it, but I, and I love watching these human periods. If you've ever, pyramids. If you've ever watched this happen, you're going to notice that they're made up of three or more people in which two or more people support a tier of people on top of them, who in turn may support rows of people on top of them. The brave ones who are, are 
up top, usually, they kneel or stand on the shoulders, the backs or the thighs of people below them. And these people, by the way, I think are crazy, but for obvious reasons, they usually put the people who don't weigh very much higher in the, in the formation, and they put the bigger and stronger people closer to the base. That way, right, the chances of falling, they're reduced. Now, Peter is concerned about the weight of false teaching on his church. He, didn't want, he doesn't want the church to fall. So his third application, which actually doubles as his conclusion of this letter, he calls on believers not to cave in under the weight of the scoffing of the wolves who wore sheep's clothing. One of the things that I, as a pastor, and I, I don't know if you guys believe this or not, but I'll, I'll tell you, I, I really do pray for everybody in our church. I have a database. That's why we love the connection cards. And even if I haven't met you, I know your name. And I pray for the people in my church would do it every day. Every morning I'll start out with a list of names and I pray for you, your family. It, it, I love our, how we do it because I know even your kids and the ages of your kids and I pray for you guys. One of the scariest things as a pastor today in this world is I can't control what you watch or what you listen to, the teaching that you listen to outside of this sanctuary. And today it's really scary because we have access to so much. You can get on YouTube today and watch whatever kind of teaching you want on the Bible. And, and I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> I worry for you because there's so much false teaching going on out there. And some of it sounds so good. Some of it really does. Sometimes I want so bad just to pull some of the truths that I hear out. But they'll just take, they'll take a little bit and they'll twist it and they'll distort it. And it has devastating effects on your life. Here in, in the end, he says, pretty much Peter's saying, you want to learn about something, learn about Jesus. Peter's saying, I love you, God loves you, I'm not always going to be with you. Peter's going to die, but the word of God will always be with you. My dad, he's no longer with me, he died. Died at 50 years old, I was 23 years old when I lost my father. He's gone, he's not with me. But he left me this, and this is always going to be with me till the day I die. Always. And here's the point. If you want to hear a word from God, all you need to do is open the word of God. That ultimately, you and I, we need authority over our life and direction for our life. And that all comes from the same place. It comes from the word of God. And what he says is this. What Peter says is this, the mockers and the scoffers, they're gonna continue to criticize. But in, instead of getting caught up with that, what we need to do is we just need to be steady and stable in studying God's word. And he says, ultimately, do not, and, and I love the language that Peter uses. He says, do not get carried away. Do not get carried away. How many of you this, this year, you've had certain issues, certain circumstances, certain things in your life that have happened? Maybe trends, maybe fears, maybe different stories that you've read uh, on the news or, or, or in the newspaper. Well, we don't have read newspapers anymore that you've read on the internet. That you see on TV and, and you're down a rabbit hole of bad information. You're down a rabbit hole of fear. You're down a rabbit hole of some sort of conflict that's way beyond your ability to resolve it and you just get carried away. Here Peter's saying, don't, don't, get carried, don't get carried away. But here's what he does say, grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Grow in understanding who Jesus is and how he has made you God's beloved. How he's made you God's beloved. You see, I love it. There's no better way to end. Peter ended on the greatest note ever. Peter ended on what should be the most, the biggest priority in our life. He ends right here. This is it. This is it. I've said it before, I know it's not like popular. I've been to certain church conferences and seminars on how to grow a church. I wanna see this church grow, I do. And I believe it is gonna grow. I wanna see real healthy growth though. I do not care one bit about filling these seats just for the sake of filling seats. What I wanna see is people coming in on a Sunday morning and experiencing the power that comes from God's word and everything that we do in our church, small groups, classes, kids programs, and, and we're continuing to go back to the drawing board over and over to figure out ways to do this. I wanna see you guys become ministers. 
I wanna see real life transformation. I wanna see our altars full of people chasing and pursuing the presence of God, but then I wanna see them taking it outside these doors. I desperately want to see a move of God in my day, in my generation. And I think we're desperate for it in America right now. I have traveled the world. I've lived all over the world. It's time for America to experience a revival. America needs the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, because we are lost and we're getting further and further and further away from this. And if you study every great revival, every great revival, it always starts at the place we're at right now, a desperation. Peter's saying this, church, don't get carried away. Don't get even scared. Don't worry about all the things you're hearing on the news, you're reading in the newspapers. Don't get carried away with this. Here's all you need to know. In the end, Jesus wins. Hold on to that truth. Hold on to that hope. Know he's coming back and you live your life accordingly. Guys, I know God is gonna move in our church and in your own life. I know some of you need a miracle this next year. Some of you have experienced so many difficulties and you're just at a place of desperation. And I'm telling you, don't give up. Your miracle might be just right around the corner. Can I pray with you? Father, we love you and we praise you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, we cling to it today. In a world that has literally gone crazy, And the good thing to know is it's not the first time the world's gone crazy. Peter was writing to a church that was experiencing craziness. Riots in the street, political upheaval, all kinds of racial discrimination. He was experiencing the same thing that we are today. And yet he was able to tell his church, hold on, hold steady, hold fast to the promises. That's what's gonna get you through. And God, even in all the chaos, that political power, the Roman political power of Peter's day was about to crumble. And even when it crumbled and chaos ensued, your church still stood. Your church still continued to grow. You continued to change and transform lives. And that's our prayer here. God, I pray you'd bless everybody here today and everybody who is watching with us. We love you and praise you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.